Hey there, folks! Welcome to E Pluribus Unum. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you're enjoying your Labor Day, the day that celebrates work on which we don't work. I know I'm not the only person to bring it up, but it still doesn't make any sense. And may I also say to many of our listeners, Shana Tova. Happy New Year! Yes, my friends, it is indeed about to be the new year, but do not fret if you're looking at your calendar and it says September 6th and you don't understand why I'm saying New Year. For those of you not of the Jewish persuasion, you still have a few months to figure out what your resolutions are going to be. But if indeed you are of the Jewish faith, then your new year starts tonight. And if you're in Australia or Israel, then your new year has already begun. Tonight marks the beginning of the new year, which we celebrate for two days. And it kicks off a whole month of holidays. So first we have Rosh Hashanah. The day after Rosh Hashanah is a fast day, which is a holiday in that it's a holy day, which is where holiday comes from. So not necessarily a day of celebration and fun, but a holy day. Then we have Yom Kippur. Then we have Sukkot. Then we have Shemini Atzeret. Then we have Simchat Torah. This is a very busy month if you are Jewish. And this month in particular, because all of the holidays are on a weekday, so interspersed with the holidays is Shabbat. So we have a lot of days of going to synagogue, being with family, and feasting. It's wonderful, but it's very hectic, especially if you don't work in the Jewish world, because then you have to ask for a ton of time off, and there are plenty of people who have to use a lot of their vacation days on a year like this for a lot of the holidays. It's just something you do. Seeing as it is the new year and about to be all of these holidays, I want to talk about the holidays a little bit and their significance. If you are not Jewish, you probably have heard of either Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, possibly both, especially if you own a calendar, like a United States calendar, because most that have any amount of holidays printed on it usually also include those. You might even notice a little asterisk next to the name. And if you look at the key to your calendar, you'll see that the asterisk indicates that the holiday begins the night before, because in Judaism, our days start in the evening. So that's why the holiday starts tonight and lasts through to Wednesday night, just like Shabbat starts Friday evening and ends Saturday night. So you may have already known that Rosh Hashanah is the new year. The way we get that name, by the way, Rosh means head. And Shana means year, and Ha is the, so head of the year, new year. You may be familiar with Yom Kippur being a day of fasting, which in the Jewish tradition doesn't mean only no food, but also no water, and that's for 25 hours from night, from the night before to the next night. Or you may not be familiar with those at all, or you might have heard the names but not known anything about them. Or you may have some vague idea that there are holidays in September. October-ish, and of course it's hard because the Jewish calendar doesn't fall at the same time as the Gregorian calendar each year, so you might think, wait, weren't these holidays last year in October, now they're in September, what's going on? This year the holidays are very early, and next year we'll say they're late, and it's based really off of nothing because there's never a time when they just are. Either a holiday seems early or a holiday seems late, but it never seems at just the right time. Anyway, the holidays are early this year, which depending upon where you live, is maybe a little bit nicer, especially for Sukkot, which is a holiday where we eat our meals in huts that we 
erect outside of our homes. And if one lives in an area where it gets cold more easily, I can only imagine that having Sukkot be earlier in the year means that it's a little bit more comfortable. Definitely people have sat in their sukkahs in the snow. But if you're somewhere where summer lasts a little bit longer and you still have to walk to synagogue in the heat, then maybe you wish the holidays to be a little bit later. The interesting thing about the high holidays, or one of the interesting things, is that while Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are fairly well known amongst non-Jews, and in fact in highly Jewish or areas that have a big Jewish population, oftentimes those are days off even for the non-Jews. For instance, my mom grew up in New York, and the public school she went to had Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur closed because so many of the students were Jewish and the teachers too, that the school would have been mostly empty. There was no point in them staying open. Some universities, it's the same thing. So even though they're public and not specifically Jewish institutions, it just makes sense to take the day off. So Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are fairly well known. But the fast day right after Yosh Hashanah, right after Rosh Hashanah, which is called Sum Gedalia, is not very well known even to Jews. Because who really wants to fast one week before we have to do the Yom Kippur fast? It's kind of a lot. But then Sukkot, Shemini Atzeret, and Simchat Torah are also lesser known holidays, both certainly to non-Jews and even within certain Jewish communities, depending upon depending upon what type of community one is in. Simchat Torah is when we celebrate the Torah. Simcha means joy and happiness, and we are joyful with the Torah. We dance with it. We finish reading the final chapter in the Torah, and then we immediately begin with Genesis. So it's not an ending, but it's a continuation, always and constantly, of our dedication and our love for the Torah. Shemini Atzeret has to do with officially beginning the prayers for rain, which comes from the fact that the original biblical and prophet times Israel and Israel was always supposed to be agrarian. So we pray for rain during the rainy season and not for rain during the not rainy season. Basically rain at the right times for growing crops. I'm not a farmer. You know, sometimes they need rain and sometimes they need the sun. So it's a prayer for rain. A lot of the Jewish holidays began as, if you read in the Torah, if you read in the Bible, they began as Thanksgiving holidays for different times of, or different aspects of farming and planting. So for harvesting and for the rain and for the actual growth and all of the different aspects. So that's Shemini Atzeret. And Sukkot, when we eat in the huts or the booths, in fact, in English, it is the Festival of Booths, commemorates the pillars of fire that accompanied the Israelites in the desert at night and the pillars of cloud that accompanied and protected the Israelites while they were traveling in the desert during the daytime. So to commemorate that, we eat in our huts. And it also has a farming element to it as well, again, as all of the festivals do. The fact that Simchat Torah and Shemini Atzeret are not well known is not super surprising for non-Jews. Jews have a fair amount of holidays. I wouldn't expect that non-Jews would be familiar with all of them. But the fact that Sukkot is not so well-known is interesting because biblically there are three in-gathering festivals, Passover, Sukkot, and Shavuot. 
And while Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur have attained a status of the most important Jewish holidays on the Jewish calendar, and so many Jews who otherwise are not involved, maybe in synagogue going, will make certain to be at synagogue on Rosh Hashanah and or Yom Kippur, Sukkot does not have that same importance, even though biblically it's at least as important, if not in a way more important, because the three ingathering festivals were when everyone, men, women, and children, were supposed to gather at the temple. Whereas Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur were also holidays for everyone, but not with the gathering altogether aspect of Sukkot. So it's interesting that Sukkot has lost its prominence amongst Jews, unfortunately, and also, and therefore, because it's lost its prominence among Jews, it's not as popular for non-Jews. It's not really going to be referenced in TV shows the way Yom Kippur Rosh Hashanah might be, which is too bad because eating in a hut in your backyard has got to be very interesting cinematically. But it's lost its prominence as has as has Shavuot, Passover still retains its. Hanukkah has become very popular because of its similarity and proximity to Christmas. But for Jews, this next month, which in Hebrew is called Tishrei, is a very busy month. And for most people, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur really are the crowning moments of this month, even though they're the holidays at the beginning. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur again, something you might already be familiar with, are times for repentance. They are the days of awe. They are very holy days. It is our it is our opportunity to say sorry to God and to ask for forgiveness for the things that we've done over the past year. Interestingly, when we ask God for forgiveness, we only ask him for forgiveness for the things we've done to him. For the things we've done to other people, we have to ask them. God has the power to forgive us for things we've done against him. He does not have the, I shouldn't say power, but he doesn't have the right to forgive us for things we've done to other people. It is incumbent upon us as humans to go apologize to people if we have wronged them. It is also incumbent upon people, by the way, to forgive us if we honestly and truly seek forgiveness. And it's said that one must seek forgiveness thrice, and if one is thrice turned away, then God considers as if the person has been forgiven, even if the wronged party didn't offer forgiveness, because because it's a two-way street, and we should be fully repentant, and the person who we wronged should also have an open heart and not hold a grudge, which is specifically something the Bible tells us not to do, not to hold a grudge. And most of us are not in situations where we've cheated someone out of millions of dollars or irreparably harmed someone physically, so forgiveness is probably a little bit easier to ask for when we're talking about those extreme circumstances. Who am I really to say, who are any of us really to say how someone should or can react in that situation? All we know is that God is all-knowing and he forgives and understands things that we as mere humans cannot. But generally speaking, if we've wronged someone, we're supposed to seek forgiveness. And if we are truly repentant, they should forgive us. And by the way, they say that Forgiveness is good not just for the person seeking it, but also for the person giving it, you know, not holding a grudge, not holding on to anger. My grandmother always said, holding a grudge is giving free rent to someone that you dislike in your mind. So these awesome holy days full of repentance and forgiveness, and you think of it 
as a really solemn day. And I think a lot of Jews approach it with great solemnity. And we should, but not only solemnity. In English, we talk about repentance. But in Hebrew, we actually use the word teshuva. And teshuva comes from the root word, which means return. It's not, strictly speaking, that we are repenting for our wrongs. It's that we are returning to God. One of the steps in returning to God is repenting for our sins. We have to repent, feel truly contrite, and then vow to never do it again, and then follow through on our vow to never do the wrong thing we've done again. But it's really a return to God. And because of this, though the day is marked with a certain amount of solemnity, there's really supposed to be joyousness. It's not supposed to be a sad holiday. And that's a tricky concept because we know we're going before God as a judge. And that's heavy stuff. You know, God's going to write in his book whether or not you live or you die, how much money you have, if you'll get married, if you'll have kids, what kind of job, where you'll live, all of those things. So yeah, it's a little heavy also. But if we think of the idea of returning to God instead of repenting, it puts a different spin on the whole thing. Returning is a little bit more like looking at God as our father than as a judge. And God is both. God is many things. But he certainly is our father. And yes, fathers might be judgmental of the things we do, the wrong things we do. But ultimately, they want us to come back. They want us to fix ourselves and be better. Good fathers do, and God is a good father. And this is true for everyone. God wants all of us to come back and mend our ways. And is it harder for some people to return to God than others? Undoubtedly, just like it's undoubtedly harder for some children to reconcile with their fathers than others. If a kid cheats on a math test in fifth grade, a parent is going to be upset and explain to the child why it was morally wrong and how to improve, but it's probably a little bit different than the kid who is on drugs and steals money from the parent or or does something even more heinous. So I'm not saying it's necessarily an easy process. There's a difference between simple and easy. In essence, returning to God is simple. We repent for the things we've done. We vow to never do it again. We never do it again. Simple steps, but so hard to actually do, but ultimately worthwhile returning to God. And if I may make this somewhat of a larger theme, which I may because this is my podcast and I can talk about whatever I want, a return to God would be something that would be really great for everyone, not just on Rosh Hashanah and not just for Jews, but for everyone in the United States and really the world over. And I know I'm about to sound like Dennis Prager, but secularism really is the root of every problem, again, something that sounds simple or perhaps even simplistic, but it's not simplistic. Just because something is simple doesn't mean it's wrong and doesn't mean that the solution is easy to attain, even if we know what it is. But it truly is the case. And the older I get and the more I live, and I know I'm still so young, nonetheless, the older I get and the more I see, I realize how true it is that if everyone truly and honestly believed in God's word and the Torah, which is the Old Testament. I cannot account for the New Testament. I'm strictly speaking about the Old Testament, as I usually am. The world would be a better place. 
because the Old Testament is a guidebook for how to live our lives. Clear, but not easy. And I recognize that it's not easy because I'm not living perfectly. It's not easy. There are a lot of rules, but it's all there. And in a way, it's easier than trying to figure out things on our own because the guidebook is there. It exists. God gave it to us. He said, here's this wonderful gift. I'm going to tell you life is hard. There are all sorts of situations you're going to come up against, whether it's disease or a friend who betrays you or lost opportunity, but I, but I've got you covered. Here's the guidebook for how to deal with everything. But we have lost that way. We don't remember why we have religion in the first place, why we have God. And so we're all adrift, looking for meaning and purpose in other places. God and religion gives us meaning and purpose. Everyone needs purpose in their life and meaning to the work that they do and to our very existence. And God gives that to us. He said, I have given you life so that you can create a good world. But without God, well, why do we have life? Am I randomly here? What's my purpose? But we still all want meaning. But if we don't have it in God, we look for it in weird places, wrong places. Whether we find our meaning in being famous or having a lot of money or enjoying all of the pleasures of life to excess or so much education or caring about the environment above everything else. Whatever thing we care about that isn't from God, even if it's a good thing, like fairness or equality, which are beautiful things that God also wants. But if we make those our ends, those our idols, then we're not doing it for God's purpose. So we find meaning in all these fake causes and all these false idols. We also have no basis for morality. And I understand that people think that we can find morality within ourselves. And while that may be true in certain parts of the West or even for certain people, or even I shouldn't say just in the West, certain people following certain religions that might be true because we kind of have this basis of we don't want to hurt other people or we want to do good for other people. But to think that morality is something we can just understand. We only have to look at kids. Kids don't have a basic good morality. We have to teach them not to hit when they're upset. We have to teach them not to call each other names. We have to teach them not to tell secrets and not to lie. And even the ethic of don't hurt other people or live and let live, it's a good start, but it's not enough because that still keeps you focused on yourself instead of other people. It's okay, you're not hurting other people, but you have to actively do good for other people. There are so many complicated situations where figuring out morality on our own is impossible. Figuring out the morality of not to rape, maybe people would come to that naturally if we talk about not harming other people. But how to act in business, how to treat our friend's lawnmower that they've lent us, how to be kind to someone even though they think differently than we do. These are all things that do not come naturally and that we need a guidebook for. And it's okay to say that we need a guidebook, that we as humans are not perfect, and that we need God for morality. Or we at least need God's instruction book for morality. I don't think you can actually divorce God from the Old Testament, you know, giving people the commandments and just saying that they're man-made, because ultimately if they're from man, even if they're 
supremely wise, someone might say, okay, well, that was just a man. Now I'm just a man and I'm going to change it. So that's why it's important to know that it's from God, because if it's from God, it's unchangeable by any singular person or by anyone at all ever. But at least if people could get back to the teachings of God, even if getting to a belief in a God creator is hard for some people. But the point is, it's all already there. And I can't tell you the number of times that I've had some sort of question or we're talking about some current trending topic or a situation comes up in my life, a hardship or a good thing. And then the answer is right there in the Old Testament. What I'm supposed to do, how I'm supposed to act, it's all right there for me. And I'm so grateful that I don't have to figure everything out on myself. I don't understand why more people don't want to do that. And so it's there. And again, it's not easy, but it's there. And that at least takes some of the pressure off of life that we don't have to figure out everything ourselves. So we could all use a little bit of a return to God from a moral standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, from a personal relationship standpoint, you know, having a close connection with God helps to eliminate fear. If we truly trust in God's dominion over the world, it's a little bit easier not to be afraid about, oh, I don't know, you know, a virus or a different political party or killer bees or whatever the thing is. If you truly believe that God is in charge, it's a little bit easier to sleep at night. Not to mention that listening to God is the guidebook for being a kind, compassionate, moral, upstanding, honest, all of the good things type of person. Isn't th- And isn't that what we're all trying to be? Whether we're working on it ourselves or yelling at other people to be it, aren't we yelling at other people to be good and kind and compassionate and honest? It's all right there. And yes, it's not easy to follow everything. Like this video I was watching yesterday about the health benefits of taking a cold shower. Like a lot of things that are good for us. It's not easy. Taking a cold shower is not nearly as pleasant as taking a warm shower, unless it's a very hot day. But even then, after a couple seconds in really cold water, you kind of want warm. But generally speaking, or very often, doing a thing that is good for us is not the easy thing to do. It's not easy to get up and exercise every morning, to choose to eat smaller portions, to turn off the TV and pick up a book, to listen to what God says instead of following our hearts and our baser instincts. It's not easy, but it's good and it's healthy. And in the long run, will make us so much happier on an individual basis and will make the world so much better. And as we are about to enter into this new year, 5,782, I give you all a blessing that in this new year, you will know health and happiness and peace of mind, that you will make new friends find purpose in your life, reconnect with old friends, that our lives will get back to normal and that we can all unify a little bit more and that we all learn to be a little kinder than necessary. Shana Tova. Thank you for listening to E Pluribus Unum. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and a review. And please share the podcast with anyone you think would benefit from some common sense and thoughtfulness. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at E Pluribus Unum Podcast. You can also find me on Locals at E Pluribus Unum Podcast.locals.com. The intro and end music is Chopin's Etude, 
opus 10, number one in C major, known as the Waterfall Etude. <laughs> 